Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. Before we begin today's episode, I'd like to take a moment to talk about dogs. Dogs have been an important part of Canadian history from the very beginning. The first dogs to arrive in Canada came from Siberia over 12,000 years ago. They were used for hunting, pulling sleds, and as companions for the indigenous people who made their way across the Bering Strait. In the 17th century, European settlers brought dogs with them as well. And like the indigenous people, they relied on their dogs for companionship, hunting, and protection. Dogs have been some of Canada's most beloved heroes. In 1909, a Labrador retriever named Polar Bear helped the explorer Robert Perry reach the North Pole. In 1916, Canadians were captivated by the story of Bruno, a sheepdog who was rescued from war-torn Europe and refused to eat after his person passed away. In 1941, a Newfoundland named Gander saved the lives of several Canadian soldiers during the Battle of Hong Kong. Over the centuries, dogs have served Canadians in an ever-expanding variety of ways. Today, they work in law enforcement, detect cancer and COVID, help find missing children, and enable the blind to get around. But for most Canadians, dogs are much more than just working animals. Their loyalty, friendship, and unconditional love have made them part of our families, Countless dogs are beloved characters in Canadian art and film. Their stories have been told by such noteworthy authors as Farley Mowat, Lucy Maud Montgomery, and Stephen Leacock. They can make us laugh, they comfort us, they remind us of our better angels, of what our character could be. And perhaps that is why we love them so much. Which brings me to my puppy, Boris. Boris is a 10-year-old... Irish Setter, Newfoundland Cross, the same breed as Gander, actually. Recently, he began hacking up his food. His bark became raspy, and he's having trouble breathing deeply, so I took him to see the vet. Boris has the canine version of Lou Gehrig's disease. His spinal cord will slowly degenerate, and over the next one to three years, he'll progressively lose control of the muscles he uses to play, bark, eat, and breathe. There is no cure, and the cause remains unknown. But there is a way to slow it down. With the laryngeal paralysis, Boris needs surgery. Without it, his constricted larynx will get worse faster, and he may pass away in only a few months. The problem is the surgery costs $5,000, which is well beyond what I can afford. So I'm asking for your help. I've set up a GoFundMe to pay for the vet. If you'd like to contribute, just click the link for Boris Fundraiser in my show notes. 
And if you've donated already, thank you. If you've shared, thank you as well. Thank you for helping us get a few more precious years together, because it means the world to us both. And I want to say a very special thank you to Andrew. What I just read was written by him. He's a fantastic copywriter, and he was able to do this for me so that I could get the word out on my dog. So if you want to visit his website, go to sublimelime.ca, and that's two limes. That's sublimelime.ca. I would like to say welcome to the newest patron of the podcast, Martin Strach. It is one of the darkest chapters in Canadian history, when a group of people were looking for a better life and were turned away by the government simply because of the country they came from. It is the Komagata Maru, and it was an event that typified Canada's racist immigration policies of the early 20th century. Before the Komagata Maru arrived, there were several thousand South Asians located in Canada, mostly in British Columbia. Working in Canada, they found that their wages were higher than what they would make in India, and they began to encourage their friends and family to migrate to Canada to join them. Even though there was only a few thousand South Asians and Punjabis in Canada at the time, there was a severe negative reaction to them in Canada. Vigorous campaigns were launched to stop immigration from places like Southeast Asia and India. Responding to this, Canada stopped immigration from those places in 1908, which was followed two years later by the United States. Under regulations imposed by Canada, anyone who did not take a continuous journey from their home country was denied entry. This was not a problem for anyone coming from Europe, but coming from India, there was no direct route, and the regulation helped stop immigration to the country from that area. Another regulation imposed by Canada required that anyone coming from Asia or India had to have at least $200 with them. That would amount to about $5,000 today, and it was far more than most immigrants had. Many Punjabi and South Asian activists began to work to reopen the ability of people from their home countries to come to Canada, especially from India. At the time, both India and Canada were part of the British Empire, and activists began to fight for individual immigration cases in court. In November 1913, a Canadian judge prevented the deportation of 38 Punjabi Sikhs by the Canadian government. The immigrants had come from India via Japan, and they'd been rejected from settling in Canada because they'd not come straight from India. The judge ruled there was fault in requiring a continuous journey and to have to pay over $200. The judge allowed the immigrants to land, and this encouraged Punjabi Sikhs to attempt to get their friends and family to the country. This would lead to the arrival of the Komagata Maru in April 1914. Over the course of only a few months, the Canadian government rewrote those regulations and continued to require $200 for entry to Canada for each person. Gurdit Singh Sahali was the man who commissioned the Komagata Maru to bring immigrants to Canada. He had made a fortune as an importer and contractor, and he felt confident in the success of settling the passengers in Canada. He would begin searching for a ship in December 1913, a process that took several months. The ship he would settle on was the Komagata Maru, a Japanese transport ship that had been under German ownership for 20 years. He would say in January 1914 in the ship's log, quote, What led me to this work is that when I came to Hong Kong in January 1914, I could not bear the trouble of those who were in the Sikh temple waiting to go to Vancouver. They were waiting there for years. 
How tyrannical and hard was this on our brothers? This affected my mind, and I resolved to take them to Vancouver under any circumstances. The ship was 3,000 tons and quite large with modern conveniences such as running water and electricity. It would also accommodate 550 people in steerage and 16 cabin passengers. Gurdit Singh installed 533 bunks for passengers and made room in the ship for a temple space for daily worship led by a Sikh priest. In April 1914, the Komagata left Hong Kong for Vancouver, and it was felt among the passengers that the Canadian court would rule in their favour, and if not, they would be able to build a protest among Sikh troops in India that would pressure the British Empire to allow the immigrants to settle. The ship officially left Hong Kong on April 4, 1914, with 150 passengers. Stops in the Philippines and China brought more passengers on, and by the time the ship left Japan, there were 376 passengers. On the ship were 337 Sikhs, 27 Muslims, and 12 Hindus. Most of the passengers were from farming villages in various regions of India and South Asia. Nearly all the passengers came from families that were defined as elite landowners, rather than lower income groups. A large portion of the passengers also had served in the army or police at British outposts, and nearly all the men on board were veterans of the British Army's Sikh regiments. They were self-financed or family-financed, who hoped to settle in Canada and bring their families over to join them. In all, there was only two women and three children on board. One passenger told a British officer, quote, This ship belongs to the whole of India. This is a symbol of the honour of India, and if this was detained, there would be mutiny in the armies, end quote. Rumors began to swirl in Vancouver that the Sarita Queen had left to intercept the Komagata Maru and prevent the ship from reaching Canadian waters. This proved to be a fake story. The Victoria Times columnist wrote in a story the day before the ship arrived, quote, If the ship succeeds in landing 350 Chinese on some lonely part of the island, the newcomers could easily lose themselves among the resident Chinese population. But with the Hindus, things are entirely different. There are not very many natives of the Indian Empire on Vancouver Island, and authorities would be able to keep track of any who evaded the regulations in entering Canada. End quote. On May 21, 1914, the ship reached Canadian waters and anchored in Vancouver Harbour on May 23. Upon arriving, Gurdit Singh knew that there would be difficulties in getting the passengers admitted to Canada, but he believed they would at least be able to land and then begin the process towards immigration. What he did not expect was the complete refusal of any passenger to be allowed on Canadian soil by the Canadian authorities. The passengers found themselves confined to a ship sitting in a harbour, unable to go anywhere. Canadian authorities stated it was because Captain Yamamoto of the Kamogata Maru was unable to produce a clean bill of health from Japan. This was obviously a trumped-up reason to prevent the ship from landing, as the captain would produce papers showing that his ship had been fumigated before leaving. The reason for this was that if any of the men aboard the ship were rejected by an immigration board of inquiry and held for deportation, they would claim they were illegally detained and apply for a writ of habeas corpus with the BC Supreme Court judge. They had many avenues for appeal at that point, and the government wanted to avoid this. The first immigration officer to step foot on the ship was a man named Fred Taylor, known across Canada as Cyclone Taylor. A star player for the Vancouver Millionaires, a two-time Stanley Cup champion, and a future Hockey Hall of Famer, Taylor worked for the Federal Interior Department during the off-season. 
Taylor would spend a great deal of time on the ship and would say after the whole affair was over, quote, it was a terrible affair and nobody was proud of it, end quote. The press would portray the people on board as poverty-stricken and the forerunners of the, quote, hordes of Asiatics, end quote. One minister told his congregation at one point, quote, it is our duty to explain to those men in the harbor that we do not despise them as dogs, end quote. This was met with a cry from the audience from one individual who said, quote, but we do, end quote. H. H. Stevens, the local member of parliament, was firmly against the Sikh's landing, and he would devise a plan in which the Empress of India would be brought alongside the Komagata Maru, and a boarding party would seize the Sikhs and put them on a CPR liner. He wired Ottawa for approval and $18,000 for the Sikhs' fares aboard the ship back. His request was turned down. Rumors swirled among the public who gathered on the shore in large numbers to see the ship. Some said the Sikhs were planning to set fire to the vessel and jump overboard. Newspapers didn't help matters. The Vancouver Sun reported in a large headline, quote, Hindu invaders now in the city harbor on Komagata Maru, end quote. The newspaper goes on stating, quote, As soon as daybreak came this morning, many Vancouver Hindus collected on the waterfront in excited groups, talking in low voices as if plotting schemes to aid their countrymen on the Japanese steamer to get ashore, end quote. That being said, some residents were sympathetic to the Sikhs. Edward Byrd, a local lawyer who was helping the Sikhs with their case, stated, quote, If these people wish to come to this country, we blame them. Are not most of the residents of Canada settlers from some other country? End quote. I want to talk about the local history atlas. This was created by one of my listeners, Ben Woodward, and it's fantastic. It's this wonderful website where you can see a, a Google Maps image of Canada and you can visit all of the places in Canada and within these places are my local history podcast episodes that you can listen to and one of the great things about it is you can add to it you can put your own pictures in you can put your own information it's creating this wonderful historical mosaic of Canada and it's a wonderful website. Uh, I have the link in my show notes, but if you also want to visit yourself, it's atlas.digitalhistory.ca. And we can create this wonderful mosaic of Canada's history. All of us, you can learn about Canada's history. If you're going on a road trip, you can use this wonderful site to see where you're going and the amazing things that you can see. So be sure to check it out. The government would offer a deal where the Sikhs surrendered their right to go to one judge or another, and instead, one of them would be allowed to file his application for a writ to be dismissed by a judge, where he could then go to a court of appeal. The Sikhs on board rejected this. The Canadian government not only prevented the passengers from landing, but they also limited their communication with the outside world, blocked any real attempt to take the case to a Canadian court, and refused to supply the ship with food and water unless the situation was desperate. The government would also try to take control of the ship by force with a boarding party made up of police officers. Gurdit Singh would cable protest King George V stating that 300 of his subjects were being starved in Canada. The Vancouver province would state in an editorial that the people on the ship were subjects, not citizens, which was an important distinction according to the piece. It stated, quote, While all Britishers are subjects of the crown, they are not all citizens. The inhabitants of India are not citizens, but subjects governed by the king through his viceroy and council, and not by a parliament. Mr. Gurdit Singh evidently believes his excursion is going to rouse all India to demand the same rights as the citizens of the empire. End quote. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. To ensure that the passengers had food and water while they waited, Lawyers, who have been hired on behalf of the passengers by their friends in Canada, sent supplies to the ship. At one point, several people on the ship seized a local immigration officer demanding food. That night, the government sent them some supplies. The owners of the ship in Japan cabled to Canada stating they would pay none of the expenses of the passengers. The cable stated, quote, The charterers shall pay all charges and expenses arising from taking steerage passengers and shall supply all provisions, water, galleys, cooks, fittings, medicine, and medical stores. Also, doctor and purser if required by the charterers in every respect. End quote. A shore committee was formed and they raised $22,000 for chartering a ship back to India, stating in a meeting that if the passengers were not allowed off, Indo-Canadians would follow them back to start a rebellion in India. After one month of waiting, the case was finally taken to the British Court of Appeal, and the judgment was obviously given in favor of the Canadian government. After the decision, angry passengers relieved the Japanese captain of control of the ship, and the Canadian government ordered the sea lion, the tug in the harbor, to push the ship out to sea. After the decision, angry passengers relieved the Japanese captain of control of the ship, and the Canadian government ordered the sea lion, a tug in the harbor, to push the ship out to sea. On July 19th at 1.15 a.m., the Sea Lion Tug set out with 120 police, H.A. Stevens, and 40 immigration officers. The plan was to board the Komagata Maru and allow the Japanese crew to get up the steam and leave. The men soon found the Komagata Maru's deck was 15 feet above the Sea Lion, and the Sikhs began to throw garbage, dining room chairs, scrap metal, driftwood, and coal down on the tug. The Vancouver Sun reported, quote, Howling masses of Hindus showered police with lumps and coals and bricks. It was like standing under a coal chute. End quote. Eight men were injured on the tug, including the chief of police. The Victoria Daily Times would report that a message came from the ship stating, quote, We will obey the law if you give us sufficient provisions immediately and provide us with passage across the Pacific. End quote. Provisions would be sent over, something that did not please Vancouver Mayor T.S. Barker, who was reported to have said, quote, The Hindus believe they have the authorities whipped into a tin. Sentiment in the city is very strong that the authorities are making themselves ridiculous. End quote. With no other option available to them, the passengers and Gurdit Singh decided that they could not have a long legal struggle and they would return back to Asia. Only 24 passengers were actually able to get into Canada. On July 23rd, the ship began to go back to Asia, escorted by the HMCS Rainbow, one of only two ships in the Canadian Navy. On September 29th, after many delays, 321 of the 355 passengers reached Kolkata, India. At this point, the First World War had begun, and the Komagata Maru had long faded from the Canadian newspapers. The British saw the men on the Komagata Maru as lawbreakers and political agitators by this point. This was not helped by the newspapers in Canada who were still talking about the Komagata Maru. The Saskatoon Star Phoenix reported, quote, They declare they are going back to India for the purpose of spreading revolution as a result of the trials of the Hindus in Vancouver. End quote. 
The passengers on the ship were angry over how they'd been treated. British officials in India also questioned the loyalty of those on board after the incident and a deep mistrust for the British fostered among the passengers. As soon as the Komogatamaru had left Canadian waters, Australia and the United States had stated they would not welcome it in their waters. One man in Sydney was reported to have said, quote, The situation that has arisen in British Columbia over the exclusion of the cargo of Hindus on the Japanese steamer Komogatamaru is one of wide Australian interest. Though she does not take identical means, Canada, like Australia and the western United States, appears determined not to allow what she regards as an undesirable race admixture, quote. Only hours after the passengers disembarked in India from the ship, 20 were killed in an encounter with British Indian police and troops when they were unwilling to disperse and tried to get onto a specially commissioned train heading to Punjab. The British also attempted to arrest Baba Gurdit Singh, who resisted arrest, leading to the overall riot. The entire incident would become known as the Budge Budge Riot. Most of the passengers escaped, with 27 avoiding arrest as the police conducted an extensive search for them throughout the region. Most of the other passengers were arrested and put into a local prison. One of the men, Gurdit Singh Sandhu, escaped and lived in hiding until 1922. His friend, Mahatma Gandhi, encouraged him to give himself up as a true patriot. He agreed and was imprisoned for five years. At this point, the Indian government portrayed the passengers as dangerous revolutionaries and it would not be until after the First World War that the passenger side of the story began to emerge that they were simply people looking for a new home who had been treated poorly both in Canada and back in India. For decades, the story of the Komagata Maru was mostly forgotten except among Punjabi Canadians. Racist immigration policies would continue for some time as well. In 1961, only 6,774 South Asians lived in Canada. After immigration policies were opened up, 67,925 were living in Canada by 1971. In the 21st century, Sikhs in Canada began to push the Canadian government to apologize for the Komagata Maru incident. In May 2008, the British Columbia government made an official apology. Reaction and condemnation from the Chinese community in Chris Brown's report. The backlash has been swift among Indo-Canadian voters too. As Stephanie Mercy reports, they are now doubting the sincerity of an official apology made five years ago. I, I was not too happy about it. Papajan Gill is the president of the Komagatamaru Heritage Society. He spent years seeking an apology for the way hundreds of Indian immigrants were treated by the province a century ago. In 2008, Prime Minister Stephen Harper apologized while on a visit to Surrey. A week later, the province followed suit in the legislature. Forgive us. You are welcome. Gill was there that day, full of Canadian pride. I wore a Canadian shirt, Canadian uh, uh, flag on, on myself with a suit and uh, you know that's how proud I was. But now he's not so sure. News of the memo this week that outlines a party plan to win ethnic votes including by apologizing for historic wrongdoings is making Gill reconsider the authenticity of the Komagatamaru apology. Very let down. Well, I'm questioning myself. I'm questioning the way it all happened. Uh, you know if uh, I knew this was in the background, I possibly wouldn't be part of it. The fallout isn't limited to community members. Three Liberal Riding Association presidents in Surrey have quit in just the past month, including Brenda Locke, 
a former liberal MLA. And CBC has learned at least one of the leaders resigned just this week because of the ethnic vote issue. Surrey Liberal MLA Dave Hare says he and many who phoned him are insulted by the plan. I think the people who are involved in uh, making this, uh, uh, just to show respect for British Columbians, the borders, uh, uh, should be, uh, t- uh, the, the job should be eliminated. Stephanie Mercier, CBC News, Surrey. In August of 2008, Prime Minister Stephen Harper apologized at a Sikh fair in a park in Surrey, B.C. He stated, quote, On behalf of the Government of Canada, I am officially conveying as Prime Minister that apology, end quote. Many felt that this was not an official apology and asked that one be delivered in the House of Commons. Secretary of State Jason Kenney stated, quote, The apology has been given and it won't be repeated, end quote. Tomorrow marks the 100th anniversary of a dark day in Canadian history, the arrival of the steamship Komagata Maru in Vancouver's harbour, and the refusal to allow 376 passengers from the Punjab to come ashore. A number of anniversary celebrations are planned, but the mood has been muted by another troubling development. About a week ago, someone defaced the Komagata Maru Memorial at Cole Harbour, writing graffiti on one of the steel panels. The graffiti has been scrubbed clean, but, the da- but that damaged the panel, and it won't be fixed for weeks. So we've decided, with consultation with Khalsa the Ivan Society, that we would take our time to make sure we restore it correctly. Um, so for the memorial tomorrow, which is the 100th year anniversary, we'll have an event down there that will we'll cover that portion of it up, and then we'll, over time we'll take the time necessary to make it whole again. This isn't the first time the memorial has been defaced. In January, a man was photographed urinating on the monument. He apologized and avoided charges. On May 18, 2016, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau apologized for the Komagata Maru. Today I rise in this house to offer an apology on behalf of the Government of Canada for our role in the Komagata Maru incident. century ago, a great injustice took place. On May 23, 1914, a steamship sailed into Burrard Inlet in Vancouver. On board were 376 passengers of Sikh, Muslim, and Hindu origin. Those passengers, like millions of immigrants to Canada before and since, came seeking better lives for their families greater opportunities, a chance to contribute to their new home. Those passengers chose Canada. And when they arrived here, they were rejected. Canada does not bear alone the responsibility for every tragic mistake that occurred with the Kamagata Maru and its passengers, but Canada's government was without question responsible for the laws that prevented these passengers from immigrating peacefully and securely for that and for every 
regrettable consequence that followed, we are sorry. In 2012, a memorial was erected at Coal Harbour in Vancouver to honour the passengers of the Komagata Maru. In May 2021, the City of Vancouver officially apologized for the incident, and City Council designated the May 23rd be an official day of remembrance. In September 2021, the City of New Westminster gave its official apology. I hope you enjoyed that episode and our look at the Komagata Maru. Next week, we're looking at Ripple Rock. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. As well, again, if you want to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash canadaehx. And you can donate to the podcast by going to canadaehx.com and clicking donate. And I also want to thank all of my wonderful patrons. And I apologize if I get any names incorrect. Sarah White, Tom McMillan, Mike Sullivan, Wendy Mills, Keelan Prignitz, Michael Matthews, Joanna Parker, Jeff Dahl, Bobs, Robert Page, Richard T., Colin Johnson, Jeff Hershey, Kyle Murray, Steve Pakin, Matthew Gartho, Lionel Romaine, Dr. Bob Turner, Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Nixon Ree, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Shove, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roy, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. Information from McLean's Canadian Encyclopedia, Global TV, CBC, Victoria Times Columns, Wikipedia, Vancouver Sun, Saskatoon Star Phoenix, and the Edmonton Journal. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.